by a show of hands, how many of you know who Mac Robinson is? Someone said who? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> how many of you know who Jackie Robinson is? And some of you are thinking, how dare she mention a Dodger player in here? Um, Jackie Robinson was the first black athlete to play Major League Baseball. Mac Robinson was actually his older brother. Um, got a silver medal in the Olympics, finished just behind Jesse Owen in the 200-meter dash. And I read an article that was describing some of the injustice he experienced as a black athlete in the United States. And it mentioned his shocking anonymity. Like, how do people not know who he is? And he was from Pasadena, and he was quoted in the article as saying, if anyone besides my family or friends were proud of me in Pasadena, they never showed it. There are some stories that often don't get told. People who don't receive recognition. The barista who makes your coffee every week, do you know their story or their name? The woman that asks you for change at the gas station, what do you know about her story? Do you know her name? One thing that I love about the Bible is that stories that you might not expect to be told end up in the text, remembered. Stories that people in that context and culture probably wouldn't have expected to be remembered, but they end up in the text. But the thing about the Bible, especially when it comes to the first half of your Bible, the Old Testament, is it's very long and dense. And so there, some of these stories still don't often get told. We're less familiar with them. So this summer, we're starting a new series called Deep Dive. And we're going to be looking at some of the stories in the Old Testament that might not be as familiar to you. Because we believe that all of Scripture has something to teach us. There's a purpose in the story being there. And since it's summer and we recognize that you might be in and out of church on Sundays, we also have provided some resources just to help ground you in like the larger narrative of where we're at. So if you get our weekly newsletter, which if you don't get the rundown, you can sign up for that. We'll send out videos from the Bible Project that correlate with the upcoming teaching. So the Bible Project has these short videos that are really engaging and gives you some of like the overarching themes. And then we'll also include the passage that we're going to be teaching on in the upcoming weeks, so you can read ahead if that helps you get a grip on what's happening in the story. Before we dive into the first passage, let me say a prayer for us. God, thank you that we can gather here this morning and anticipate that you are going to meet us, that you have something to speak to our hearts. Pray that you would open our hearts to receive more of your love, stretch the seams of our heart, that we would be more grounded in the love and compassion that you have for us. We pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. <clears throat> so, 
This morning, we're going to be looking at the story of Hagar, and her story is in the book of Genesis, which is the first book in your Bible. To give you a little bit of context, the book of Genesis describes the creation of all things, God creating the world and everything in it, including humans, and in the beginning, things are really good. And God lives in close relationship with people, and people live in right relationship with each other, and then people rebel against God and go their own way. And there's consequences of their decision of this sin. And what you notice, if you were to read through the book of Genesis, it's like the cracks are spreading and things are getting worse. Because in one chapter, people are disobeying God, in the next chapter, brother murders brother. So God sets out with a redemptive strategy to make all things right, to restore relationships between us and God and us and each other. And what's a little bit surprising about his plan is that he partners with humans to do it. He calls this guy Abram, and he says, you're going to go to this place that I'm going to show you, and I'm going to make your name great, and I'm going to bless you so that you can be a blessing to others. And then he gives him another promise and says, Abram will have as many offspring as there are stars in the sky. Wow. It's a pretty awesome promise until you imagine what the birthday budget would have been like. (laughs) So God makes that promise, but the conflict unfolds when Sarai, Abram's wife, has yet to have a child. That's where we find ourselves this morning in chapter 16 with verse 1. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had not been able to bear children for him. But she had an Egyptian servant named Hagar. So Sarah said to Abram, The Lord has prevented me from having children. Go and sleep with my servant. Perhaps I can have children through her. And Abram agreed with Sarai's proposal, so Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian servant, and gave her to Abram as a wife. This happened 10 years after Abram had settled in the land of Canaan. So Abram had sexual relations with Hagar, and she became pregnant. But when Hagar knew she was pregnant, she began to treat her mistress, Sarai, with contempt. And Sarai said to Abram, this is all your fault. I put my servant into your arms, but now that she's pregnant, she treats me with contempt. The Lord will show who's wrong, you or me. Abram replied, look, she is your servant, so deal with her as you see fit. Then Sarai treated Hagar so harshly that she finally ran away. So a summary of the story so far. Sarai, Abram's wife, has not had a baby, and she comes up with a solution as to how she can have a baby. Her and Abram rob Hagar of her agency. Notice that neither of them mention her name in the text. They treat her like a tool. And even though the context and culture that this story happened in was different, this is abuse. In fact, this text was originally written in Hebrew, and the word that describes how Sarai treats Hagar is the same word that's later used to describe how the Egyptians treat the Hebrews when they're slaves in Egypt. 
describe the way that they oppress them. So now Hagar, a pregnant woman, flees alone in the wilderness, unsure of what the future will look like for her. Will she even make it home? Who's going to take care of her? Who will raise her child? How will they receive her? Probably experience some kind of shame of wanting to hide, of feeling insignificant. And the story goes on and says, an angel of the Lord said to her, found Hagar beside a spring of water in the wilderness along the road to Shur, and said, Hagar, Sarah's servant, where have you come from and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai, she replied. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her authority. Then he added, I will give you more descendants than you can count. And the angel also said, you are now pregnant and will give birth to a son. You are to name him Ishmael, which means God hears. For the Lord has heard your cry of distress. This son of yours will be a wild man as untamed as a wild donkey. He will raise his fist against everyone and everyone will be against him. Yes, he will live in open hostility against all his relatives. Thereafter, Hagar used another name to refer to the Lord, who had spoken to her. She said, you are the God who sees me. She also said, have I truly seen the one who sees me? So that well was named Birla Roy, which means well of the living one who sees me. It can still be found between Kadesh and Bered. So Hagar gave Abram a son, and Abram named him Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Ishmael was born. So a couple things to note about this interaction. God's messenger uses her name. This is the first time someone uses her name. And the promise made to her resembles the promise that God made to Abraham, that she would have so many descendants she couldn't count. There's a tremendous amount of honor in receiving that promise. And Hagar names God, the God who sees. She is the only person in the Bible to give God a name like this. She is in the wilderness alone, probably afraid, feeling unseen, but God sees her. Can you think of a time when someone made you feel seen? I hope that we've all experienced something like that where someone just understands our experience, where they notice us. They understand the nuances of something that we're experiencing. It almost catches us off guard. Like, how did you know? You understand. A few years ago, on a Saturday, I had an experience that was pretty anxiety-inducing, but I had a really full day and a tight timeline, so I couldn't do any of my, like, meditative breathing practices. I actually had to go to Costco, which is, like, the last place that you want to be at when you have anxiety. So I, pack, I parked in the back of the parking lot, and I had sunglasses on, and I just had my hand on my chest, and I was like breathing as I was walking into Costco. Like, I'm okay, I'm gonna be okay. And I see this man who darts through the parking lot, 
with a veteran's hat on, and he comes over to me, and he says, excuse me, miss, are you okay? And I was like, oh, he's talking to me. Like, he noticed, noticed subtleties in my posture, in my breathing, to know that I wasn't okay. Of the sea of people in this very hectic parking lot, he saw me. And so much of my anxiety seized because of his compassion and care and because he noticed. I think that's like a sliver of what Hagar experiences in this moment. Wow, God, you see me, you know, you understand. God sees. And this is consistent with God's character. God binds up the brokenhearted. God hears the cries of people who are oppressed and liberates them. God is near. But there is something about the situation that doesn't quite make sense to me. Maybe it doesn't make sense to you either. Why does God tell her to go back? I mean, it sounds like God is sending a woman back into an abusive relationship, which doesn't make sense because that's not something that God would do. So I wonder, was Hagar going to die on her way to Egypt? Did something happen in Sarai because she's not mentioned again in this chapter? Later, when Ishmael is older, years later, conflict unfolds again, Sarah does something similar, sends Hagar away. Hagar is again in the wilderness alone, cries out to God, and God provides for her. Her story actually ends with finding a wife for Ishmael, the promise of fulfillment, agency, and security. I don't fully understand it, but I know God's character and who God is. So what are we to learn from Hagar's story? What are we to learn if we don't identify with her experience? Even if we don't identify with her experience, we all have wounds in need of healing. Maybe wounds that we haven't allowed God to see. Maybe it's the, the longing to really live and believe like you are enough like you are loved, like you don't have anything to prove, like you don't have to work so hard to fit in or be seen. I, have, uh, I know someone who is in sales, and as you can imagine, their job involves a lot of rejection, but they are very sensitive to rejection. So we've had a number of conversations where they've processed gosh, like, this just, it feels like I'm not good enough, like, I'm not doing a good enough job. They automatically assume that it's something about them if it doesn't work out in their favor. Rather than creating space to be curious about maybe it's something the other person they need or something they're going through. And she's been processing this in therapy, but she said the one thing that really grounds her when she's stuck in this place of feeling unworthy or not enough is grounding herself in the truth that she's enough for God, that God sees her. God sees us. There's also something to learn from Sarai and how she responds in this situation. The way she acts reminds me of this quote 
by the psychoanalyst Carl Jung. He said, people will do anything no matter how absurd in order to avoid facing their own soul. I think it would be oversimplistic to say that she does what she does because she doesn't trust God. I think there's probably a lot more going on in her experience. Women in this time and context who couldn't have children experienced a tremendous amount of shame, of insignificance. And to have a son was to experience a kind of increase in social status and security, someone who would take care of her in her old age. But then I also wonder how she was impacted by something Abram did earlier, because he actually did something similar to her when they were in Egypt. He was afraid that his wife was so beautiful that they might kill him for her, so he said, let's just pretend like you're my sister. And then they take her into Pharaoh's palace, and who knows what happens there. So I wonder in this moment if she's thinking, if he was willing to do that to me, then what will he do to me if I can't have a child for him? Who will I be? Peter Rollins, he's a kind of philosopher. I heard him say in a podcast once, someone always pays for your inability to confront yourself. Our inability or unwillingness to confront what's going on in our own souls has consequences for other people. Maybe we're humiliated at work because a boss calls us out on something or we're feeling less important so we lash out at a coworker. Someone wants to help us, but we have difficulty trusting people so we push them away. Maybe we avoid conflict because that's how conflict has been modeled for us and so our relationships are a little superficial. Can you imagine if Sarai had gone to God first, if she had said, God, I'm so afraid. Who, I, I, I don't know how to trust you with this. I'm so afraid I'll never have a child. I'm so afraid of what that will mean for me, of who I'll be, my future. If she had gone to God again and again. Rich Lotus, pastor and author, said in a traumatized world, loving well starts with confronting or facing ourselves, which in turn enables us to relate differently towards others. In short, the person we must learn to love is ourselves primarily. It's very easy to focus on the traumas of others, and there's a place for that too, but first we're called to open our own hearts to the personal healing available in God's love to open ourselves up to the healing that's available in God's love. We're going to go into a time of discussion in a couple minutes, but before we do that, I want to invite you, if any of this story resonates with you, if you know that God sees you, but maybe you've never felt it, or maybe you notice there's something within yourself that you're afraid to confront or acknowledge, wrong that you've caused. Let me invite you to do a couple things. One, during worship, you could go over to the prayer wall and let people pray for you. I've actually had more experiences of God seeing me when other people are praying for me than any other experience. And the second would be David Alvarez, who was a pastor on staff here at one point, 
This summer is leading a book group on the book All Together You. It's a very practical book by a Christian therapist who goes through the uh, internal family systems model of therapy, which is a really helpful model to help you better understand yourself and receive God's love for all of your all of yourself. God has more healing for all of us. God sees all of us with eyes of compassion. Let me say a prayer for us. God, thank you for a reminder that you see us, that maybe when no one else notices, when no one else sees, that you're dodging across parking lots to come meet us and show us care and compassion. I pray that each of us would experience that in a unique, intangible way. That we would come to know you more intimately and that we'd experience healing from that. I pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. So we're going to give you 10 minutes uh, to discuss together. We have a couple questions on the slides. One, have you ever heard a Hagar story before? Have you ever experienced God as the one who sees? And can you think of a time when someone else paid for your inability to confront yourself? So take about 10 minutes to discuss, and then we'll come back together and worship. <laughs> 